Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of SASLife.fm. I am Sam Shrupp, and I'm here with Chris, as always. Chris, how you doing? I'm doing well. I'm a little bit itchy, but I'm itchy. doing pretty well. Okay. Yeah. What's, the, what's the cause of the itch? <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, it's a bit of a story. Have you ever heard of bird mites, Sam? I've heard of them, but I, I don't. It sounds like just, I, I don't know really what's going on. What, what, Nothing what, with mites let, let's, let's in, Yeah, let's okay. enlighten me. So... We had this family of robins that moved in. They built a nest and it was so fun because it's right on our front. We have like a second story front porch. So it's right under that. So we have a big window that looks out onto the nest. And so we saw them build the nest. And then we put a little camera right above the nest as well. Actually, a nest cam, an old nest cam that we had. (laughs) Like, okay, this is going to be great for the kids, you know, and I now know more about robins, their nesting habits, their feeding habits. So we watched these, you know, we watched five eggs get laid and then they hatched and now the babies are getting ready to fly. All really cool stuff. The other day, yesterday, my oldest son went to go look at the birds. So he went up to the top of the deck, put his head down to look kind of through the cracks at the nest and came up screaming because he had like a silver dollar sized swarm of these pinhead mites oh. on him oh and we're going oh my god you know throw him and <laughs> get his clothes off throw him in the shower come to find out my youngest son then did the same thing right afterward oh, we didn't geez. you know we didn't know it my oldest is in the shower anyway so we're dealing with these little tiny mites that bite and they like to come oh. out at night and it is really annoying the good news is they can't reproduce on people they're gonna die out and i think we're they're far over away. the worst yeah. of it but it really kind of soured the whole nature the whole bird experience, experience. <laughs> <laughs> so that's nature, our world nature's right great. now yeah nature's great at a distance <laughs> type of thing <laughs> yeah we're sticking to the camera now and we are not going out and using the front door at all until this oh, wow. thing is done so julie and i cannot wait for the birds to leave the nest so we can spray that right thing down with some pesticide Oh man. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. That's, that's, that's the real world though. That's, that's nature. That is nature. You know what? At least we didn't have like a predator come eat the birds or something. Well, that's, that's another thing. Yeah. Or, you know, you wake up one morning and one tried to fly and didn't quite make it. And it's just laying there on your front porch. You know, there's, there's a lot of, a lot of negatives that could come out of that situation, but I'm glad you had some positives and it was a good experience, but I, the, the laying of the eggs and those hatching, that'd be, that'd be a really cool visual. I'm sure. It'd be fun. It, or it was fun. Yeah. But yeah. So that's where we're at. Okay. So what is going on on the business side? A lot of things as usual, a lot of different directions. You know, probably the biggest news is that we were having an issue with queries just being really slow. And it was, you know, people use our site a lot to find something specific. So they're slicing and dicing the data in all different ways. And we've got a really robust filtering system on our tables. Like we've got these cool custom tables that you can do all kinds of things with. But everything was taking like on the order of five seconds to come back. And it was just too much. And we noticed it getting worse the more customers we've brought on. So it was finally time to address it, brought in, put a post on Upwork 
and ended up hiring a team. So they're a Ukrainian agency who specializes in AWS. We have two full-time folks and kind of one person overseeing them who are really going to work hard. They're going to do some both, both some backend and front-end stuff, but the main push here is going to be toward addressing that, that slowness. No, that's great. And so with the, the agency aspect, so are you seeing this as more of like a temporary fit, come in and fix this problem, or are you vis- visualizing this as more of a long-term kind of an extension of your core team? I hope it's the latter, but I'm perfectly happy with the former. If they can address this, you know, great. It's a couple month engagement. It's not, it's not cheap. I mean, it's not US based prices, but they, they are expensive. So it'll add up. But if they do a great job and have some additional resources that they can continue to contribute, we've got plenty of work. Yeah. Well, and we kind of talked about this a little bit, you know, when I was going through the hiring through also through Upwork, I found my front end freelancer. The nice part about agencies and freelancers is it's really easy. I think you'll find out very quickly whether they're capable of the work or not. And so you have the ability to kind of test the waters very quickly. And if they don't work out, it's no harm, no foul, you know, I guess is one way to look at it. And, you know, you just move on to the next one and you, you it's sunk cost and time and, and obviously the fees, but it's not like you're engaging with a W2 employee that has, you know, a lot more time commitment going with them. Yeah, it's much bigger deal. Lives, you know, it matter much more in that way because that's the commitment they're making to you as well. So, yeah, in this case, no, they've been on for about two weeks. I don't think we'll know exactly how well they're doing for another week or two, which is hard, but that's just kind of the way things work. You know, I mean, there's time to ramp them up. Yeah, there's a decent onboarding, especially now that our application is the size it is and the feature set that it's grown to support. What was your your vetting process like with them? I mean, so obviously you you put something out on Upwork and they responded to that that ad or that that job listing, but how did you go from there? I mean, why did you pick this particular agency? Okay, well, well, let's back up a second. So the first thing I did was I actually used a job post that was more or less, or at least substantially identical to one that I've used in the past for finding people to work on this particular application. So same job post, basically, totally different pool of applicants this time around. Generally speaking, my process is to skim the applicants. I start to kind of skim them right away and, you know, either thumbs up or thumbs down them, which is all kind of an internal thing. They don't see that. So thumbs down is either you clearly don't speak English very well, which doesn't mean you couldn't be a great developer, but as far as just communicating needs, I need somebody who is fluent. So that's one thumbs down. Another thumbs down is clearly generic, didn't answer the screening questions, thumbs down. So I start there. Thumbs up is, you know, quick skim seems to meet the criteria, you know, and might've had a particularly good answer to a question, like actually took the time and and really wrote, you know, not just a one sentence quick thing. And then everybody else kind of stays in the middle and I, I continue to play that game. So that's the usual. How long did you have this open? Roughly. I mean, when, when, when's your, when, from the time you post to when you make a commitment, what's your timeline of what you're hoping for to, to get to find someone? About three days. Oh, okay. Applicants must be able to see how many other people have applied. So sure. I found that applications die off pretty quickly. Yeah. So within about three days, I 
look to hire. And I think it's also important because obviously those people have an opening in their schedule. And so they're probably applying to other jobs too. You know, it's competitive both ways. So I try to, after about a day, so I'll usually post one day and then the next day I'm reaching out to top contenders to schedule interviews. And it's pretty quick after that too, to see who falls off on the interview side. Right. You know, and there were a few of those this time around too. So I think I interviewed five people this time, which is actually more than normal. Normally I'm more than that. That's a decent size. Yeah. But I got so many more applications. So I, I said before, it's kind of different this time around. The quantity of applications I got was much higher than ever before. Same ad, totally different quantity of applications. And the quality was really great too. It was actually, there were some people that I wish that I had interviewed. I'm happy with who we ended up with, but I wish that we had interviewed them because they seemed really solid. So that was kind of interesting too. Yeah. Well, I kind of want to take a guess and probably go on a little bit of a tangent here, but the thing the thing that I've noticed is obviously in the tech space, there has been a good number of layoffs in the last four to six weeks. Specifically in the SMS space, I've seen Voyage SMS has laid off a good percentage of their their people, about 10%. Postscript, which is in the Shopify ecosystem, just laid off 43 people, which is about 20% of their, their force, a workforce, which is interesting because they just announced a new round. They just raised $65 million earlier this year and now they're doing layoffs. And so that's not a good look. I, and, and to be fair, we don't obviously know the, the whole story behind that. The founder put together a whole Twitter thread on, on what happened and the timing of it because it did not look good. They, they literally had this big splash email campaigns, in-app pop-ups of like, we just raised a ton of money. And then a week later, 40 people are, are laid off. And I think the money was raised and closed a lot earlier in the year. And I think there's some rules of when they are allowed to disclose and things along those lines. So I think that's where the timing lined up. But but it's very clear that they acquired this money. They got this new round of funding. Things changed, whether industry-wide or with their particular business, and they needed to reduce their their runway or their burn uh, and extend their runway. And so what I've seen is just in general, it seems like there's a lot more talent with all of these layoffs coming into the marketplace. And that could be W-2 employees or it could be freelancers in general. So I'm wondering if that's one of those things that we're seeing happening in the Upwork space, which is more freelancers and agencies. They just might, there might be more of them or less opportunity of work because all these bigger companies are kind of reducing their, their spend. Yeah. I think it's important to realize that big companies do use freelancers too, especially yeah. in this case, it's an agency that I brought on. So, which is something I haven't done before, but their whole portfolio is really decent size or venture backed companies who are looking to extend their team for a specific project. Yeah. And and I think especially at the venture side, the message that's been going out in the industry is just get in survival mode. And so I think these companies, they might've either paused hiring completely or, or gone so far as they had to lay off some current staff. And it's just, it just really is preservation mode. And when you're in preservation mode, you are not going out and seeking agencies. And so those agencies are probably looking for more work and, and have a lot more open schedules coming up. Like they might have their current contract finished with that particular company, and then they have nothing coming in the door. So it's a good opportunity for individuals like us who aren't at that place where we are looking to grow or at least engage in more freelance work. And it seems like there's going to be a good opportunity in the next six months to really find some good quality talent at, I don't want to say 
inexpensive pricing and you always want to pay, pay a fair wage. But if there's a lot of people looking for work, it's going to take away kind of that white hot <laughs> expense that was there before. Because 18, you know, for the last 18 months, it's been near impossible to find a developer in the US or otherwise. I mean, they've just been in such high demand that they could really command anything they wanted, whether it's direct compensation or bonuses or things like that. And I think the, that's going to be kind of tempered a little bit in the coming months. Yeah. You know, I'm seeing that in other places too. So the other role that we're looking to fill is a sales role, full-time sales role. This is, you know, this takes a while to go through relationships and vet candidates. I'm looking for somebody in the industry, ideally, but I've got a couple people in mind and something I'm starting to hear that's really interesting is that people who are currently selling, you know, robots, for example, are going nuts and looking at leaving because they can't get the parts. So they're having to turn down orders that might otherwise happen, which impacts their salaries. And they're going, you know, I'm sick of this shit. So uh, as a direct quote, that's interesting. interesting. Well, because the salesperson is doing their job, right? They're landing the sales and the company, for whatever reason, supply chain or whatever, can't fulfill the orders. So the sales dry up and if the sales drive up, depending on how they're compensated, more than likely it's some sort of commission based thing. That's right. Yeah, that would be or they don't have demo equipment available because they've right. sold their demo equipment. That also is happening. So yeah. I'm trying to think about how to take advantage of that as well. I mean, it's going to make hiring easier. In fact, one person who I've really kind of been wooing, it was hard as we're starting to just talk numbers and look at his compensation. He has a truck, you know, that he can drive wherever he wants. He has all these other perks that are really nice. And now he's looking at it going, yeah, but as my compensation goes down, I'm willing to give some of those up. Those, those perks up. Well, it's interesting because I'm wondering, I haven't made this decision yet, but does the wider market impact your decision on hiring? Because one of the things that I saw, especially when kind of going back to the postscript thing, there's a lot of great talent that's obviously in the SMS space. And I have no idea what kind of NDAs they have or if non-competes or if they, if they can't work in the, in the industry. But to me, it's like, there's some great people that have worked on the SMS problem already. And so is this an opportunity to bring them in? Is this the right time to bring them in? Even though I as a company or me personally, I'm not quite ready to make that commitment, but do you just make that leap because the talent is there and it's available or is that? too detrimental? And is that, is that a long-term impact? Well, certainly you have to have a role for them, right? Are you not quite ready or are you completely sure. not ready? So that's yeah, one yeah. decision that seems obvious. Especially with the developer, you, you talked about there's plenty of work on your end. There's plenty of work on my end. It's more of like, this wasn't in my current roadmap, at least in the next three weeks to start onboarding and getting those systems in place that we talked about as far as being a successful direct employee and go to go the W2 route. I'm very comfortable finding some freelancers and things like that. But it's like, man, if you have the opportunity to find an A plus player, does it make sense to bring them in as a W2, even though that's not quite exactly what you were thinking as the vision of it's time for a W2? There's plenty of work freelance wise, but it's like, do you latch on and grab that that employee? Are you seriously contemplating that or is this kind of just tumbling around in the back of your mind it's more back in my mind it's like am i losing out an opportunity really what i'd like to do is just kind of have a discussion and 
probably put up a career page and, you know, maybe put some job listings out there in general. I don't know. I, I again, I kind of go back and forth. It's, there's plenty of work, but I, I need to be in a good place to be a good employer. <laughs> That's the big thing. So I got to work on myself first and just, but it's like one of those things. It's like, well, if this was a plan for Q3, Q4, does it make sense to kind of reshuffle priorities because there is opportunity to find really good talent right now? Because like you said, these individuals that are on the market right now, they're going to find a place. They're going to find a landing spot in the next three to four months, if not sooner. And they're not going to be there potentially end of year when I'm ready, you know? So it's just, you know, like everything it's, there's trade-offs, there's pros and cons. Yeah. I can't really imagine hiring a W2 employee far in advance of being ready for it and knowing the business could support it for all the reasons we've talked about many times over. But I wonder if some of those people are actually looking at contracting as well. Yeah. And that's, that's the one thing that I need to think about is like, do I really, it, it was clear that when this started happening and it's like, oh, if I, even if I wanted to go out and find these people or, or work with them, or I, I don't have the materials, I don't have the pitch, I don't have the, <laughs> that whole thing ready to go for that type of employee. I'm much more situated for the path that we both taken, which is good position on, on Upwork, find a freelancer that makes sense and go from there. Not necessarily that, uh, W-2 type of employee. So that's more than likely what I'm going to do just because that's <laughs> that's what I'm situated for. But it is good to hear that you're seeing an uptick in, in talent, even in that space too. Yeah, I, I really was surprised at the candidates that came in. So that was really interesting, kind of triangulating with what's happening in the broader economy and the sales role and kind of the things I'm hearing there does make me think it's a good time. And it's one of those things. How do we how do we take advantage of it? Being bootstrapped, there's definitely some advantages we have too. So how do we capitalize on being able to move quickly and being able to make the decisions ourselves, you know, not have VCs telling us, nope, time to stop spending. But also, you know, the, the other side of that coin is, hey, wait a minute, did you see what's happening in the broader economy? Is this a good time to be spending? Right. There's that question. And I, I'm sure some of the for more of the W-2 employees, their first question is going to be like, I just left a company that just raised a ton of money. How are you going to be different being bootstrapped? Are you sustainable as a company? And so it, it kind of goes that two-sided interview side of like, how stable is the company itself? Am I going to commit to, to you guys? Or is the the opportunity good enough and, and exciting enough to, to come on board and take a little bit of that risk too? Yeah, that's right. They're hard questions and it's fun. It's kind of the evolution, I guess, of going from building a product to building a business. You know, we have to go through this, but it's nerve wracking too, to be honest. Yeah. I'm, I'm probably going to put it in the same category that I do when thinking about competitors is you want to be aware of what your competitors are doing, but you can't be obsessive about it. And so you got to make the decisions that are right for the business itself. And so like you were saying, if I'm not ready to bring on a W-2 employee, just because there's this opportunity, quote unquote, that's out there of potential employees doesn't necessarily mean that it's right for my business to accelerate that. And the same reason, there's no reason to get so obsessive about what the competitors are doing. They're going to do what they're going to do. You're going to do what you're going to do. Stick to what you're good at and follow the plan, follow the strategy. Definitely, we need to pivot when you can, but I don't think this is necessarily a change everything moment. I don't think so either. I think it's a good idea to schedule regular check-ins to kind of work at that strategic level, right? So you can kind of come up for air and look around, look at, you know, whatever 
document you might have that guides your strategy, whether it's just scribbled notes in a notebook or something more formal and make course corrections if you need to. So totally switching right. gears. You know, the other thing that I have been starting to work on and starting to discover, or at least I shouldn't say discover, I'm starting to theorize about are help documents as a competitive advantage. Oh, I like that. So our industry in particular, we have a lot of people who are scared of software and computers. And a lot of times they'll ask, you know, do you have a manual? It's like, well, no, we don't have a manual. We have a knowledge base that isn't super well filled out, but you can always contact us and we're here to help. And I think that people are a little bit shy about doing that because some of them aren't at all, but others don't want their lack of computer savviness to make them look bad or make them look bad to their employer. I'm thinking and hoping that if we could build out help docs and a help site with really great videos, really great screenshots, just really nail it, that it could elevate us above the competition, Who most of whom is in the same position that we are. They don't have a whole lot. I really love this idea. Is is this something that you would have behind like a closed door? Like you have to be a customer to access these, or is this going to be a public public doc? Okay, because I have an opinion on both. Yes. So you that is such a good question because that's something I've wrestled with as well. Or a hybrid approach, right? Some some goes behind closed doors, some doesn't. Ultimately, we're going to put it under lock and key, and the reason for that is because. For some of our other products, we have an annual support and maintenance agreement, and I really don't want to cannibalize that. Now, the maintenance part, you know, updates and things is easy enough, but still, if we are totally public with our help docs, it would make it really easy for people to say, well, I don't necessarily need to pay for support and maintenance. Because that's an optional thing. It's an option. Or, or, yeah. I yeah, see. Yeah. Okay. So, all right. Okay. So, that's a concern. I am far less concerned about, you know, competitors looking through it and right. things like that. That doesn't really bother me. But it also brings up the question then, okay, so we've made the decision to to lock it down. Cool. What about all the operators out there? Is it going to be hard for them to get to it? You know, and so I'm like, I don't know. I'm starting to think of like maybe magic link style, something kind of clever on the off side so that people can get to it easier. Because we, you know, our customers are organizations, right? Like we're not dealing with individuals necessarily. So, I mean, at a big organization, there could be 50 people that need access to this. More common would be like five. So I'm trying to think about that too. I think there's a couple ways you can do that. So the the first thing I'm going to say, and this might not be applicable for, for your situation, but I like help docs as an SEO play in the sense that you can get traction as you get more articles that are written about different features, you're definitely going to hit certain keywords and it just gets more content out there about the product itself. And personally, I've used help docs of software that I'm evaluating as a potential buyer. And I use those help docs, not necessarily to say what's their support going to be like, but just to learn more about the tool before I buy, you know, because the marketing site's only going to say so much especially if it's something that I'm looking to hook into as a, from a developer perspective, I look at the API docs and I just, I'm, I, I get a better sense of what this product does and what its capabilities are through the help documentation before I even commit to buy. Oh, totally. I mean, let's get really meta here. I've been doing that a ton with help doc sites. 
So, right. you know, and customer support <laughs> platforms like Help Scout yes. versus Zendesk and yeah, really digging in. So I, I get it. So you'd have to weigh that lost opportunity with the concept of you don't want to cannibalize your, your support and maintenance. One of the questions that I, I know customer support is really, really important to you and it's a big, big feature, but is, are people just automatically enrolled in the ability to call or have live chat with your support team? Because that's, that's where I've seen different support or different software. They kind of split it up. It's like, you can always email us. That's our baseline support. But if you need phone call or phone, phone support, that's where the packages come in or the upgrades come in. Yeah. As of now, you get it all or you get none. And got it. We're not great about the none. I mean, if you call with something and you don't have an active support and maintenance plan, but it, we can solve it easily, we're going to solve it for you. So right. hopefully there's not a bunch of customers listening to this who are now going <laughs> to go off their support and maintenance <laughs> plans. But we try to be customer friendly with that stuff. But right. we do need to charge for it in part because we do need to provide phone support. By and large, that is what our customers prefer. Mm-hmm. And when something happens, they need support now. You know, if they have a right, truck go right, down right. that and, you know, I mean it happens all the time. Okay. Truck is down. We're not sure why. Something, you know, between the hardware software interface isn't functioning properly. And we have an emergency on Main Street with, you know, a broken pipe. So right, get right, us right. up and running. This is hugely problematic right so they call yeah that's interesting that's a tough one so the main appeal is going to be for current customers and just give them another resource well on the flip side is that going do you do you vision these these help docs maybe lessening the burden on your support team and the calls yeah i I think they will i mean i know i just said they call all the time so if you think of it that way it's like well okay (laughs) what's the point of the, the help docs but I think it's going to do a couple things. First of all, I do think it will lessen the calls. I also think that customers are going to use them to educate themselves for non-emergencies, right? For not something's broken or doesn't work, but how can I do this? And I think that that's going to lead to greater engagement with our software. We don't track this super well. It's something I'd like to track, but I definitely am seeing customers not use the full breadth of the software. And my guess is it's because they don't know how. And, you know, we've talked about some webinars, some other things we can do, which really go hand in hand with, with the help site and pointing someone somewhere. So, so that's the second thing. And the third thing is a sales tool. If we can point to this, because the people we're selling to aren't necessarily always the people who are using the software day to day, right? So if we can point to those help docs and say, Hey, you know, everything is right here for you. And that's a question that when they're doing a demo with another customer, they ask, we're going to come out ahead. So those are the three main reasons. And I guess as a three and a half, they're going to be great internally too, right? So, you know, our our support people can follow the script, if you will. I mean, they're always going to have a resource. They can look it up because you, you forget things. I mean, I forget things, even if we've solved them before. Oh, absolutely. hundred percent. It becomes that source of truth that living, breathing, growing documents, as long as you maintain it, <laughs> which is always the challenge. But the interesting thing, you mentioned the webinars, I could see that being really a really good place or a really good strategy for you guys in the sense like have either a weekly or twice a month open office kind of webinar kind of concept where 
And maybe your customers will participate in this and maybe they won't, but it's basically try to get those people to come together on, you know, at a, at a set time, have maybe a mini presentation about a, some sort of topic of a different area of the software that they, that we're going to talk about and be like this, but it can also just be an open discussion where they can just bring their questions and you kind of have this open forum help desk real time support, but then your customers are seeing what other customers are doing at that same time, which is nice. And so there's kind of a network effect to it. Maybe this says something, but that's a little bit terrifying to me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I say it from someone that's never done it is like, Oh yeah, you could just do that every, every other week or so, but, or once a month. I like the idea quite a bit, actually. I just am wondering if it's, we've talked about doing it actually as a, for big companies, especially as kind of a service, but it would be more one-on-one within that company. Hey, you know, we will do a webinar on a topic of your choice, or if there isn't anything, you know, something that we specifically tailor to you once a month, something like that. My concerns with having it totally open, which does not mean I wouldn't do it, but my concerns are okay, if a customer is really having an issue, are they going to use that as a session to vent and all the other customers are going, we see that every once in a while, I shouldn't say every once in a while, at trade shows, there is usually always one customer who will come up and it's a problem that they've been having and haven't been able to resolve. They're frustrated and you're trying to talk to other customers or prospective customers and they want to just unload. <laughs> and it's like, you kind of have to pull them aside and work on it. You want to solve the problem, of course, but it doesn't always reflect well on the business, even if it's not your fault. That's a tough one. I'm just trying to think of through all the webinars that I've been in that are kind of similar thing where we're going to bring together potential customers or existing customers. And you're right. There's definitely some people that are like, hey, this feature's not here. And you said, what's going on with that? And typically what they do is they'll spin it to like, you know, we will follow up with you after that or, you know, and, and, or after the, after this meeting, we'll do a one-on-one session with you and they can kind of deflect that away from the, the larger group. I mean, there's always going to be questions along those lines or complaints that are along those lines, but I, I just, I feel like the benefits would far outweigh that potential scenario in the sense that you're providing some really good insights to those customers in a more scalable way, as opposed to individual sessions with each individual customer. And not to say you don't still do that, but it just gives you a kind of a forum to be like, we're going to push this 15 minutes worth of this thing and exposure to the, the app in a new way. By the way, if you have questions or if you are bringing, and that, that's the other thing is you can work with some like friendly customers <laughs> that you know of and be like, Hey, we'd love to have you talk about this experience or how you're using this part piece. And they become kind of co co-hosts for that particular webinar and teaching the other businesses. Hey, not, it's not just us telling you you can do this. So-and-so, you know, Joe Schmo over here has already done it. Well, I definitely love that. And, yeah. you know, maybe there's a way to do this where it's semi-controlled, right? So it's okay. We're going to do this presentation. And then the end is more the Q&A, which gives us probably better evergreen content anyway, because the presentation is scripted and we can cut off the Q&A part and post that to, you know, the internal help site. Yep. So, yep, yep. No, I, th- I think that's something that you could do really well with. Especially, I mean, your, your project is so big and so complex that it really does need ongoing training and support. And we're going to get into that too, as far as like, 
webinars for best practices when it comes to SMS in general, what campaigns are working and things like that. We're just such in the early stages that we just don't have a huge library of what's working and what's not working. But eventually we're going to have that. And to have, you know, once a month or quarterly of partially onboarding, but partially continuing education, just kind of have some sort of mechanism where customers can kind of come together. And whether it's like a really controlled topic with Q&A afterwards, or whether it's just kind of a free-for-all open open office hours type of thing, I haven't decided yet. Yeah, it'll be fun to see where you go with that. But it's definitely also something that we're we're considering. And I would say that I'm I'm committed to the concept of, maybe I shouldn't call it help docs, but of help and support as a competitive advantage. And I'm, I'm looking for ways to fulfill that. But it is a big commitment and I need to think through resources as well. Yeah, because there's nothing wor- worse than having help docs that just are stagnant and old and have old photos and bad instructions. I'm kind of running into that a little bit with my current week. A nice little segue into I've been heavily developing on Shopify. So I've made the, the strategic decision to attempt to get into the Shopify app store. And so it's been updating text retailer to comply with all of their their rules and also going through their approval process and making sure that that's all good. And so the Shopify documents are great, but there's a lot of old documentation that's out there that doesn't really apply. And there's definitely areas of their documentation that are much more fresh than others where it's it becomes very clear <laughs> when you've hit a part of their their stack or their offerings that just are not as well kept up to date. And that's been a little bit of a challenge and a little bit of a frustration. But Do they have other avenues for support or are you kind of just out in the cold? <sighs> Honestly, I haven't really tried it. You know, so I've been I've been looking for no, I haven't reached out directly for for help at this point, but it's been more of just kind of figuring it out on my own through their current docs, through other resources that people have put out, tutorials, YouTube videos, the generally what every developer does, which is <laughs> if you don't know how to do it, someone else has written about it and you find it and, and, and you, you help it go. But no, they have a really good, the biggest problem that I ran into is they had so many starter templates that they've built throughout their years within their, their GitHub repo. It's kind of, fig- it's hard to figure out which one to use, but finally got the, their updated version of the, the CLI onto my terminal, was able to get a, an app stood up and, and ready to go. So, I mean, their tooling is, is really phenomenal what they've done for, for developers. It's just a matter of finding the right one for the right situation. Plus, then I'm running into old instances within my, actual MacBook of having to update my environment to play nice with yes. the CLI. So so there's there's mixed frustrations that aren't Shopify's fault. <laughs> it's just it was a frustrating grinding week, but a lot of progress happening. I I'm I'm pretty excited of where 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 I'm at right now. So So tell me what this means uh, strategically then because uh, in previous episodes we've talked a little bit about other avenues, you know, big commerce, things like that. What does it mean for you to be now going the Shopify route? There's a couple of things that have happened. I don't think Shopify has come out with an official policy change with what they call sales channels, but I've noticed that's what I want a text retailer to be is, is what's considered a sales channel because it opens up certain pieces of their API, which we would need to use to do native reply to buy compatible with Shopify. And was this what you were talking about before that was only for like giant companies? Is this the same yes. thing? I've been wanting to be a, a sales channel for at least a year. 
this is definitely that that route. And they haven't come out and said this is our new policy, but what I've been seeing is other app developers getting their apps converted over to a sales channel in the recent weeks. And these are apps that based upon the old definition of what I was told, they don't meet that criteria. They don't have that requirement anymore. So it feels like there's been an internal policy change at Shopify that allows for some more flexibility with what a sales channel is and how they approve that that process. So that gives me hope. But um, how much so, of what you're developing now then are is contingent on actually being able to be a sales channel? Are you worried at all that this is a dead end? Well, it, it very well could be. But to be fair, I've never applied I've never fully applied for a sales channel in the past because basically the work that I've been doing this week has prepped text retailer to the point where I can actually apply. And before it was more of like reaching out to Shopify and saying, Hey, I want to build this and just kind of getting a depend on who (laughs) some people gave me like, yeah, absolutely. You could do this. And other people like, no, you absolutely can't do this. And so it depended on who I talked to, but it's given me more confidence to at least devote the rest of July to this process and at least go through the application process. So, okay. So that's yes, the decision is made. It's still speculative. Yes. You don't know if the policy has changed or not. Were you ever given an actual policy or was this more observational and anecdotal as well? It's the latter. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just, but the, the things that I've been seeing from people talk about their application process and converting over and, and, and doing this, it seems that it's more flexible than it was in the past. And on top of that, Shopify did have an official policy change where things, they, they want more, more approval on every app that exists. And so the concept of custom apps that aren't approved by Shopify, those are in the, the crosshairs right now. So it's like everything. It just kind of comes into that platform risk where it's like, I think Shopify is really getting to the point where like, here are the rules. You better play by the rules. and do not violate the rules and we're going to make sure you're going through our approval process. So that's, that's just the name of the game. And it's just, it's one of those things where you can't ignore <laughs> Shopify, the distribution, the, the amount of merchants that are in the, the, the industries that I want to target that are using it. It's very, it's frustrating on one hand, but on the other hand, it's, it's a huge opportunity. And so I'm, I'm excited for it. It's one of those things that I wish. If this comes to, to pass and it's true, I wish I could have done it a year ago because I could have been in the in the app space doing a unique something unique with Reply to Buy in Shopify a year ago. Well, but, but alternatively, you know, you know, you could be waiting for the official announcement that doesn't come until a year from now, right? So exactly, who knows, right? And and so we'll we'll see it. So I'm I'm really excited for how the next few weeks kind of turn out. I'm hoping to get that submitted here shortly, at least version one, and get some actual feedback and kind of see where things go. But it has huge implications for the future of text retailer because I think it drives marketing strategy. It drives hiring decisions. Mm-hmm. It drives partnership decisions, integration decisions. Because if we, if I'm able to bring the vision that I have for text retailer to Shopify natively, that's a whole different ballgame and probably will be our main focus. I still have the benefit of we're in the big commerce store and things like that, which is nice. And we can definitely cater to a different type of merchant within that ecosystem, but there's just far less of them. And so it'll be interesting to see where this goes, but I'm, I'm excited for at, at the very least I'll be, I think I'll be able to provide a text retailer light version 
to to Shopify. Which okay, so there's kind of a soft landing. It's not completely boolean. You're either in or you're out. Yes. So in the the soft landing would be merchant sends out a campaign. It offers a particular product. The customer replies with a quantity or a yes, and instead of being able to purchase or to to process that transaction through the text message thread out of band, we basically generate a link that's custom to that subscriber to the Shopify checkout. And they have to complete the checkout through there. Still very convenient, still a nice shopping experience, just not as magical as you reply with three and the purchase happens and it's done. But it's still, I mean, um, shop pay and everything else, it could still be pretty smooth. It's still very clear. I mean, it's literally like two clicks because all their information is preloaded because we know who they are through the text message. So we preload all of that into the Shopify checkout, especially if they have shop pay, their wallet's already there, ready to go. And they just confirm the order basically. And so that's the soft landing. Ideally, I would love to bring the entire reply to buy in the text message thread to that ecosystem. Of course, that'd be nice. Still love it. How much further do you think you have until you're submitting? I'm hoping next week. That's, that's the, that's the goal. The other thing that's nice is I have the quick cart concept Mm -hmm. and then we have reply to buy with links. And so I kind of view this as an iterative thing. So if I can get through round one of approvals and get the sales channel approved. And that basically gives me the opportunity to list in the app store. I don't think I'm going to actually list right away in the app store. Then it would be doing version two and trying to get the native reply to buy in there. And then once I have that or here one way or the other, either that's not going to be possible or it is possible, then I can do my positioning, get listed in the app store and really figure out what the next steps are for Shopify. So at the very least, we'll have a Shopify light version of text retailer or a text retailer light version for Shopify, I should say. But I would love to have the full version. Yeah. So I should know more in three weeks. Do you know <laughs> how less. quickly they respond or is that a black box I think as def- well? It's not defined, but I think they're relatively quick in turnaround, like a matter of days, not a matter of weeks. So I'll, I'll have more to report. Hopefully, <laughs> hopefully the next time we talk. Sounds good, man. Well, it's good to catch yeah. up today. Lots going on. I'm looking at our notes as they exist anyway so much we didn't touch on today so we'll save yeah. that for next week or the next time we record that sounds great well as always thank you guys for listening we appreciate devoting your, your time to hearing us ramble and rant about stuff we don't know about so it's always good and thanks for tuning in and chris we'll talk to you in a couple of weeks sounds good sam see ya